Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We'll be reading a lovely text this morning, if you would please stand together for it. grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the living God endures forever. So God's people strive together to hear and to heed God's word faithfully together. We hear God's word this morning from Acts 1, beginning at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers in the script, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Thus far the reading of the word of God. Please pray with me. Still ourselves before your word, O Lord, we recognize that it is life-giving. And sometimes the, the way that it gives life is by exposing the sinful misery and reality of death itself. And so we pray that with a sober mind and a tender heart, we would receive your word implanted with meekness and fear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Today is what we refer to as Reformation Sunday. And as was highlighted in the announcements earlier, we will have something of a uh, fun celebration on Tuesday evening that I would encourage you to come from. It it will be a nice time. And when our elder uh, referred to the soup as hearty, don't worry, it has no strict association with the diet of worms. (laughs) Best joke for the Reformation ever, probably. But today we celebrate the rediscovery of the gospel, and in many ways, the reformation of the church. 
And I want to be careful with the language, make sure you capture the distinction well. Uh, We do not celebrate the invention of the gospel nor the revolution of the church, but rather a return to the word of God and a clear understanding of how we are justified in the sight of God and what it means for us as the church to be the people of God. And the text today, strange as it is, is a very fitting text for such an occasion. I have slightly tweaked the outline, uh, though the text itself gives uh, the most numeric attention to what happened with Judas. The first section regarding the church gathering uh, in many ways deserves its own attention, so I'm going to stretch out a little portion here and think first about the church gathering together with one accord. So thank you for your patience with that minor change. In many ways, this text begins with the question, or by answering the question, what happened next after the ascension of Jesus? Jesus died, he rose again, he came back and appeared to his, not only disciples, but a great crowd, a very large crowd, and then he ascended up into heaven, and the question is, so what is going to happen next? In many ways, uh, this is like a follow-up movie in a trilogy or a series of movies where you might be wondering, having watched the last movie, so what happened to the good guys, that is the disciples, and what happened to the bad guy, that is Judas? Well, first, let's talk about the good guys. The opening scene of our text shows us what the disciples were doing immediately after Jesus ascended up into heaven. But if you come at the text with a slight question mark and ask it this way, uh, what might they have done right after the ascension? What would you say would be the answer? Jesus said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. R.C. Sproul in his commentary on Acts on this section suggests that arguably the first thing they might have wanted to do was run out and tell the world. Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus has ascended back into heaven and we are eyewitnesses to these things. But that's actually not the first thing they do. The first thing they do after Jesus is ascended is go in a room and wait. Perhaps the very opposite of what you might have expected. Now, on the one hand, this is a little bit anticlimactic, but it is also the further setting of an important stage. Jesus had told them that soon, but precisely when was not made clear, the Holy Spirit would come upon them and then they would receive power. And yes, they would be his witnesses to the very end of the earth. When Jesus said these things from a visible point of view, this was his swan song. The last thing that he says before them in the flesh, before he visibly departs and ascends up into heaven. But what the disciples do next is very important. They return to Jerusalem from where they've been, a place called the Mount of Olivet. You've been to this mountain before. It becomes, like so many places in the Bible, a scene or stage used more than one time. Important things happen on the Bible atop mountains, Old Testament and New. Important things have happened in the life and ministry of Jesus at the Mount of Olives. And so it's a very fitting place for Jesus to have ascended up into heaven there in the presence of his disciples where earlier ministry moments had also happened. And from that mount, 
they leave and go back to Jerusalem, and we we're told precisely how far about a Sabbath day journey, which would be 1,100 meters or three quarters of a mile. And there they come to an upper room. And maybe as soon as you hear the phrase, you wonder what I'm wondering. Is it the same upper room? I'm going to give you a very careful, deep, theologically precise answer. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. Maybe not. Some think it could be, but you can't prove it. This would be uh, a large room in a guest house, usually near the temple, near the court of the Gentiles, that would be used for people who are traveling through. Think of something kind of like a guest house or a medium-sized banquet hall that could be used for traveling pilgrims or events. What they did there is far more important than where they were. And I, and I want you to capture this point. It actually kind of overtook the sermon a little bit for me. They prayed. The first thing they really did after Jesus ascended into heaven was not even go out and begin carrying out the work of the Great Commission. The first thing they did was they would go back to Jerusalem, back to this upper room, and there they prayed. It's not a small thing. What effect did the ascension of Jesus have upon the disciples? Well, it affected in them a desire to pray, a willingness to pray, a determination to pray. And only did they pray, uh, the language describing it almost gives you the sense that something they did at a sustained level. They devoted themselves to prayer. The fact that they devoted themselves to prayer, being the precise language, implies devotion. Devotion not simply to prayer, but also devotion to one another. You might say it this way. Uh, it implied uh, devotion to prayer that led to unity, but their devotion to unity led to further prayer. There's a line that you've heard many times, the family that stays together, or excuse me, prays together, stays together. And you might say it like this way here, the disciples that prayed together stayed together. It's not a small thing. Jesus goes into heaven and they go to a room and pray. Is that a lack of action? No. The resurrection, the ascension of Jesus ought not to eclipse our desire to pray. If anything, it should further it. The fact that God is sovereign, knows all things, decrees all things, determines all things, rules all things, governs all things, does not imply that we now have an excuse not to pray, but rather the very opposite, that he is determined to use our prayers to accomplish all his holy will. The disciples know what the plan is. They're not praying because they don't know what to do. They're praying because they do know what to do. And they pray. So you might take away from this a minor point of application. <clears throat> if there is strife, which there often is, in the family, in the church, you could ask a sort of a simple and easy question. Are we praying together? If not, then you might not only know why there is strife, you might also know the solution. So the fact that they prayed together immediately following the ascension and were devoted to it is beautiful. And notice that it's not just the 11 disciples that gathered to pray. It's 120 people in all. Uh, there are women who are there. There is Mary, the mother of Jesus there. There is even uh, the brother 
the brothers of Jesus. This is a remarkable crowd. It's also quite a cast of characters. Think about it. Uh, This cast of 120 people, they're devoted to prayer together immediately following the ascension, just to name them off, Mary, the mother of Jesus. I almost wept when I read this, thinking about it a little bit more carefully in detail. This is the last mention of Mary, the mother of Jesus in the New Testament. And what a fitting end, if you will, to her part in this larger drama. Think of all that this woman had gone through. She's a young lady, and the Holy Spirit tells her, you're going to have a baby in a rather unusual way. And then the both awkwardness and beauty of what follows with that. And then uh, Jesus, who was miraculously conceived, is birthed. And then there's his life and his ministry. What it would be like to raise baby Jesus? What would it be like to raise teenage Jesus? Imagine a teenage boy apart from sin. I can't. (laughs) No offense intended. And not only that, be not simply his mom, but a witness to his life, but then his death, and finally his resurrection. And now think about it. Mary, this woman, uh, whose little baby boy she raised, now her son, her son, who traveled within her womb, who walked alongside her in life, is now the resurrected King of Kings and Lord of Lords. To put a a really crisp punctuation punctuation point on it, uh, here is Mary with her 119 gospel friends praying to her own son. It's remarkable when you think about it. Praying to her own son. And then there are Jesus' brothers. Why is that significant? Well, uh, because quite uh, earlier in the story, we have interaction with Jesus' brothers, and they're quite the skeptic. They mock him, like typical brothers, right? They give him a hard time. They doubt. They disbelieve. They were his childhood friends. They were his brothers, And now he is their everlasting savior. Imagine that, praying to your brother. It seems like sacrilege for some in this room, I would imagine. That's exactly what they were doing. So I'm going to suggest, tell me what you think later, that this may have been arguably one of the sweetest, neatest prayer meetings ever recorded in 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 the Bible. Mary, the mother of Jesus, the brothers of Jesus, the 11 disciples, and about 100 other people all gathered together, devoted to prayer, standing in the shadow of the ascension. There's just one problem. Just one thing is wrong. Something is missing. The 120 suggests that of fullness. It's 12 times 10. You should have caught that. But the number 11, now there being simply 11 disciples, suggests not perfection or wholeness, but rather brokenness. So what happened to number 12? And this is where uh, we come to it slightly awkwardly. Oh, it's the Judas thing, the betrayer. So if we talk now a little bit about what happened to the good guys, the 11, the 120, what did happen to the bad guy? And this is where now we'll spend a little bit of time thinking about, I'm going to combine this, Judas' great betrayal and God's great judgment. Peter stands up in verse 15 and he points out the obvious. Men often have a gift for that. Uh, There's a missing link here in the chain. 
someone, something is missing here. In a little while, he will quote from Psalm 69 and 109, uh, psalms that reflect upon betrayal in general. If you go back and read them, they are psalms of betrayal. They are psalms that include what we would call imprecatory uh, comment, request, asking God to judge his and our enemies. And then they each include direct references to the Judas narrative. Judas was the great betrayer. He was the guide to those who came one night in the darkness to arrest Jesus and to take him by force. Judas, in many ways, is, at least in my mind, one of the scariest people in the Bible because he was the greatest hypocrite, a false friend. Notice what Peter says about him in verse 17, almost as though setting up the great fall, a Humpty Dumpty moment of sorts. He was numbered among us, one among the 12. He was allotted a share in the ministry. The word uh, share is very interesting because on the one hand, it could suggest daily allowance, provision of food, water, and shelter. It could also mean inheritance, something Eternal, something brothers would share after the passing of the father. In many ways, he was part of a band of brothers, close, intimate collection of men devoted to a singular purpose, a mission, a ministry worth laying down their lives. Judas walked with them. He talked with them. He ate with them. He slept with them. When we go through life, there are some relationships, and you know what I'm talking about here. There are some relationships that are almost destined to remain shallow. Nothing really significant happens in those relationships that causes those relationships to grow deep root. And we have many friends like that. There's nothing really bad about it. But then there are other relationships in life that end up growing really deep roots. Relationships that weather time relationships that weather trial. And in many ways, it's because of that time and those trials that those relationships grow deep roots. Some relationships are forged by things stronger than glue. So I wonder here, I say that all because Peter has said it, how would you describe Judas' relationship to Jesus and the other disciples? What word would you use to describe him? Would you call him a friend? Would you call him an enemy? or the recently coined term frenemy. I was actually rebuked recently for using that word. I happened to be at a place, there were other pastor theologian types. I got to know a man there named uh, Tom Hawks who directs church planning for a sister denomination. He's actually writing a book on this subject. And I don't know how we got there, but he made a really, really interesting point. I'm, I'm going to share with you. I think you'll find it edifying. And he says, our, our theology of enemies is all wrong. And that often the only way that we can think of someone as being an enemy is if they are perfectly and consistently uh, those who are outside the camp, outside the faith, as though the only real enemies that we have sometimes are those that are completely foreign to the body of Christ, or if you will, the covenant. And his point is actually, if you go back and you read the Psalms, the majority of the enemies that David is chased by, pursued by, hounded by, are not pagans, Gentiles, people from the covenant community, even at times members of his own family, whom he refers to as enemies. And so it comes along with a phrase that you know, friendly fire hurts the worse. 
but my friend would say, there's no such thing as a frenemy. It's a really poor phrase. There are friends and there are enemies. And the way that you tell the two apart is that a friend has your back. An enemy is trying to put a knife into your back. You can ponder that as you wish. Judas proved to be no friend, no frenemy, a clear enemy, an enemy disguised as a friend, and he betrayed Jesus, he denied Jesus, and with his help, they crucified Jesus. So dark was his deed that Jesus even said that Satan had entered his heart. He was overtaken, if you will, by the powers of the world below. Satan was involved, but to be very clear, Judas was guilty. His sin was his own, and the wages of his sin was death. A gory death. I was asked by a teenager in our church earlier this week what I was preaching on today. And I told them about the text. And their response surprised me when I described Judas and his guts falling out. And when they said to me, well, I can't wait to hear this sermon. <laughs> because what is described next here is something like a fight scene in a zombie apocalypse movie. <clears throat> Verse 18 Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Gross. There's an apparent tension. Maybe some of you have already started to wonder about if you know your Bibles well between Luke and Matthew regarding the final demise of Judas. Matthew describes Judas as hanging himself Luke describes him here as falling into his field and his guts gushing out. So how do you reconcile or understand the two? It's it's a fair question. Uh, The answer is likely that both actually happened to him, that Judas did indeed hang himself as is here described. And when he came down rather forcefully from that rope, which may have broken or however he came down, when his body hit the ground, as a corpse sometimes does, it snapped and his guts came gushing out. <clears throat> and so horrific, hellish was the scene that they gave the field where it happened a nickname, Akadama, or field of blood. This is a field that the priests, after Judas apparently had a little surge of guilt or whatever and tried to give the money back, uh, they took that money and they bought a piece of land right there close to the cross. And it became a burial place for strangers that were passing through and died. What a fitting place for Judas to die and be buried. Hell on earth. Hell on earth. But be with me here. And then came hell. I'm becoming more and more convinced that among the many challenges before the church today and a rising generation is that we have lost our grip on the doctrine of hell. God has been reduced to Santa Claus, toothless tiger, a paper dragon, Very few people think in terms of eternal categories. And the idea of hell itself just seems uh, like a politically incorrect myth created by old fuddy-duddies that just want to scare people. And to lose our grip on the doctrine of hell is to render the gospel and the work of the Son of God utterly pointless. Jesus didn't come uh, to save you from your tax problems or your 
narrowly relational problems. He didn't come to give you just a healthier, wealthier life. He didn't come to reverse your country song where you've lost a few things and now you just want to get them back with his help. He's not a genie in a lamp that you pull off a shelf when you need him just to fix this earth's bumps and bruises. He came, beloved, to save us from the wrath of God. And what Judas experiences in his final moments of life are an earthly preview of eternal hell. It was hell on earth. It is zombie apocalypse. The living dead. The dead yet living. You should be a little grossed out by it. And even more, you should be sobered by it. Because the wages of sin is not a bruise. And death itself is not simply a moment. And it even has great effects for the way we think about evangelism, as I mentioned earlier in prayer. For if we lose our grip on the doctrine of hell, with what sense of urgency would we hope that anyone would be saved? Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God and hell itself. So don't soften this moment. Judas, the son of destruction, was well used by Satan to accomplish all of Satan's unholy will. Sin seized his heart. Its wages took his life. And where is Judas now? He went from hell on earth to hell itself. And the zombie apocalypse is there to rattle our cage just a little. Let me ask a very uncomfortable question. You'll get mad at me today. It's all right. Just be patient. How many Judases are there in this room? It's a scary question, isn't it? It's a sobering question in many ways. People like Judas often pretend friendship with Jesus for a time. And then some wander away and deny him. And it's one of the saddest realities in this world. And if you've been a Christian longer than 30 minutes, you know that what I'm saying is true. And if you've been a Christian for a matter of years, you've probably had your heart broken by the very thing I'm now describing. But think about this. You're probably already there. Would we not all be Judases, but for the grace of God? but for the grace of God. Grace that forgives. Grace that restores. Grace that preserves. I'll give you just a little sneak sneak peek into something I pray frequently, that the Lord would keep me from becoming a Judas. That he would keep me far from sin and unbelief. That he would keep me close to himself. That he would keep me away from all these things that can pull people away and even sometimes pull pastors away, things that would enable us to betray the Savior, things that would cause us uh, to become false friends. And not only that, uh, we ought to praise God remarkably for what? Well, in many ways, for what happens in Acts 1, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because it's that Holy Spirit that does what, beloved? Assures us, be with me here, I know I made you nervous, assures us that we belong to Christ. What is the difference between Judas and a true Christian? The answer is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God in the hearts of God's people. 
And that spirit assures us that we belong to Christ. That spirit assures us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That spirit confirms the promises of God that are yes and amen in Christ all through his word. And the very same spirit confirms all those promises to us week after week after week through word and sacrament. And is by God's spirit, beloved, that not only will he finish the mission in you individually, but in us collectively, which is his church. And this takes us to our third and final point, one whose name remains the same, continuing the mission. Verse 21 begins a little bit of a reprieve for which we can be grateful. I know this is a heavy subject. The process of refining a replacement for Judas, if you will, a new apostle. Closing this gap that Peter has pointed out is really significant. The 12 apostles, as we mentioned, represent the tribes of Israel. Wholeness is clearly in view, but not simply wholeness, newness as well. With the apostles, Jesus has a plan. We call it the Great Commission, that a new Israel is now about to be gathered on the other side of this new exodus, Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven. And this new Israel is to be his church, a church composed not of one ethnic nation, but rather of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And not only a new nation, but a new temple that will be built with its 12 beautiful stones. Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone, but the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. But imagine a foundation that's missing one corner or one corner that is out. That is the problem with only 11 apostles. A new apostle must be found. We're going to talk about that a little bit. And I'd like to encourage you to make sure you're paying attention here. And let's, let's get something straight. What is an apostle? Don't you think it's silly that I have to even raise this question? But do you know how many times I've gone someplace? You probably have too. And someone with an awful lot of energy introduces themselves as apostle so-and-so. And I just wonder, what are you smoking? <laughs> There are three clear criteria for being an apostle. They're all here in our text. Peter mentions them. One is that they've been with Jesus and the disciples from his baptism to the resurrection. He makes that very clear. Two, that they were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And three, that they are appointed and called by God himself. Now, there are many people who have called themselves apostles or called themselves into apostleship, whatever that means. But if someone says to you, I am an apostle, my response would be, you look really good for your age. <laughs> for about 2,000 years old, you are doing great, and you're not an apostle. Peter walks us through these criteria. Two men are put forward, Joseph called Barsabbath, Barsabbas, or Justice, and uh, Matthias. And very important, I want you to notice again what they do here. In many ways, it's like the bookends of this particular section. It's the sort of pastoral, practical bookend as well. What do they do here at the end? Exactly what they did at the beginning. They prayed. They prayed. Almost as though prayer were important. Almost as though prayer were essential. Almost as though the ascension of Jesus up into heaven uh, fueled their prayer. They prayed, 
and they ask God to show them the man of God's choosing, and then they cast lots. Now, we've talked about this before because it came up in Nehemiah. It's a curious thing. Uh, we've, we've talked about it. Here it is again. I would simply urge caution that casting lots uh, is a very questionable at best form of decision making. And arguably, while it might be one that the Bible describes, it is not one that the Bible prescribes. To say it differently, uh, this is a precedented decision-making tool, but not a normative one. So to be super clear, if you are trying to figure out who you should marry, where you should live, what job you should take, or questions like that, it would not be your pastor's advice to grab a pair of dice and just roll them and sort it that way. And I don't think anyone around this room would give you that advice. It reminds me a little bit of the person, this is a fictitious story I imagine, but you probably heard it, who says, I want to discern what the will of God is for my life. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a Bible and I'm going to close it. And I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to open it. And I'm going to put my finger on a page and whatever it says to do, that I'm going to do. And so I close my Bible, I close my eyes, I open it, and I put my finger down, and I open up my eyes, and it says, Judas went out and hanged himself. And nervously, we close the Bible and say, well, that clearly was a mistake. I didn't want to do that. Let's try again, close the Bible again, close the eyes again, open again, finger down again, open the eyes one more time. Go thou and do likewise. Is this how we discern the will of God? This is the way people sometimes read the Bible or treat the Bible or treat really important decisions. And arguably, it's a very poor means. We can do better. But notice the one thing that they unambiguously did that we should unambiguously do as well, and that is they devoted themselves again to prayer. They didn't just cast lots. They prayed, and Matthias was found. And guess what is told about Matthias? Very little for which I'm actually rather grateful. Very little is said about this man. In many ways, uh, that's great. All that we know about him is that he fits the criteria for an actual apostle. He was with Jesus from his baptism to the time he was resurrected. He was an eyewitness of the resurrection, and here he has now been called by God. He fits the definition of a true apostle. He closes the gap completes the chain. He's now part of the team. But I want to spend just a couple moments here. I know our time is running out. Uh, but I want to spend a couple moments here just thinking a little bit about this guy, Matthias, what we can arguably and rightly infer from him. And that's this question, what would it be like to be in his shoes? Who wants to wear Judas' shoes? Who wants to take Judas's spot? Not simply becoming an apostle, that part actually sounds pretty cool, but to be the guy that replaces Judas, I would think would be a rather awkward spot to sit in his chair at the big table, so to speak, to stand in his shadow and start doing the chores that he would have been assigned to do as the men went about their work and week together. I would think it would be remarkably awkward uh, to stand in the place of such a fallen soldier like Judas. And that's the thread that I want to pull here. I think it's important. I think it's part of what God is showing us here in his word. Let me rephrase it. How do you take the place of a fallen soldier? Enter into the ministry, filling in the gap where Judas 
once stood the friend who was a friend of me, who at the end of the day was really nothing more than an enemy? I think this is a very important question, a very live and real question for many of us, and perhaps even in different ways. There are young people who've grown up looking at parents who've greatly disappointed them. There are young men contemplating the ministry, having looked at ministers who have greatly disappointed them. Most of you know I I planted two churches, by God's grace, in our denomination. And the first one that I planted after I left, uh, someone I knew as a friend came and pastored that church and became in that presbytery arguably my second closest friend. I knew his family, he knew my family. I stayed in his home, he stayed in my home. We went surfing together, we worked on committees together, we traveled together, and after a decade of ministry, he fell a great fall. He is completely out of the ministry and he is no longer even married. He did great harm to his wife and his kids, and he did great harm to his church. And on one occasion, I had an opportunity to actually sit and talk with a young man who'd been a part of that church and was trying to process, do I even now want to go into the ministry? How do you take the place of a fallen soldier? How do you lift up the tools that were once held by a Judas? Well, I'd like to propose there are two options. One is you bail and say, you know what? I'm out of here. I'm not up for it. My heart's broken, my head's spinning, and I'm gone. But I'd like to suggest a more God-honoring way, and I, I really hope I have your attention and that my transparency here is not unhelpful to you. The other way to consider answering the question, how do you take the place of a fallen soldier? And this is what I hope people would do if somehow I ever had a fall, is pick up my sword and do better. Pick up that fallen soldier's sword and do better. In other words, when a soldier falls, you have the option of saying, it's dangerous here, bullets are flying, bodies are falling, turn and run. Or you could say, the battle is hot, but it belongs to the Lord. And I will not turn back. I will not give up. I will not surrender. I will not give in. I will take up his sword and do better. Don't worry, I'm doing fine. I love Jesus. I love my wife. love the church. Things are great. There's not a sequel to this. But I would even push it further and say, <clears throat> what would you hope for Matthias? <clears throat> that he would do as well as Judas? Well, that's dumb. That he would do much better? Absolutely. And I think even there is a great point. What is it that we want for our kids? What is it that I want for the young men being trained up in our midst that they will do like I've done? Of course not. They would do better. So young, young men, young women, maybe you have been disappointed by someone who's run on the track in front of you, in family, in ministry, otherwise, and you have an option of turning back, or you have the option of taking up your sword, your cross, following Christ, and doing better. What will you do? How will you decide? Well, in Acts chapter 1, we are shown very clearly how we ought to go about answering that question, how we ought to finish the mission, and it begins and it ends 
with prayer. God calls his church to finish the mission. That's the point. That's the answer to the question, what happens next? The mission begins. And what God calls his church to do, he provides for his church to do. It is his mission, not ours. The mission is his, but the stewardship is ours. So note again as we conclude, the text begins and ends with prayer. Our mission, our part in the Great Commission, our part in the story should as well. Let's pray. Well, Lord and God, my first prayer is that there would not be a single Judas in this room. Anyone who simply pretends friendship with Jesus while in their hearts actually denying him. And so, Lord, we would pray together that if any hearts might be hardened, that on this very day, by the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, soften hearts and grant genuine repentance and faith. And we ask, O Lord, as your sons and daughters, that by your Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that you would assure us within our hearts that we belong to you and that you will finish that great mission that you have begun even until the day of Christ Jesus. And finally, Lord, we recognize that we live in a world full of fallen soldiers. All of us have been disappointed by someone. And we each know, O Lord, the temptation to be discouraged, to fix our eyes upon man rather than the God-man Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that in place of fear and disappointment, that you would grant to us faith and a stony resolve to take up our crosses, to deny ourselves, to follow after Christ, and to be confident that he will indeed finish all that he has accomplished. And Lord, many of us have things to wrestle with. And we pray that just like the disciples, having watched Jesus go into heaven, and when the first question they encountered was before them, we pray that we would follow their example, which is to devote ourselves to prayer, not simply individually, but even alongside one another. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.